This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. Okay. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, why are we whispering? There's something out there. There's something. We, out we have to run silent. We have to run deep. Shh. Is there. Listen. Okay, go ahead. Is there something out there? In another boat? Or is there something in here? In this boat that we're in right now? A terrifying question to ponder. We're going to be pondering both of those questions on this week's episode, listeners. Of course, we are going to be talking about the Dracula on a Boat movie that just came out, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And then we're going to be pairing that with another movie about silent running Das Boat. I'll keep my headphones on. Keep an ear out for those depth charges, Sarah. They could be coming any time on episode 395 of Seeing and Believing. Welcome to episode 395, listeners. If that opening didn't clue you in, it's going to be a little bit outside of the box for this week's episode. Although, in the case of this first movie that we're going to be talking about, maybe I should say it's outside of the coffin. Yeah, well, outside of the box of dirt, perhaps. It depends on how closely you want to read to the original Dracula. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we're we're belaboring this metaphor a little bit too much. But needless to say, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff happening in this episode. We are going to be talking about the new Dracula movie, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. We're going to be pairing that with the arguably the submarine movie from which all their submarine movies have been wrought, mm-hmm. Das Boot. Uh, We also have a a special announcement coming up in the middle segment, so definitely stick around for that as well. But that said, let's turn our attention to the vampire in the room, the crates of dirt in the room Mm -hmm. uh, with our discussion of The Last Voyage of the Demeter. This is the latest film to take as its inspiration the Dracula story uh, by Bram Stoker. It opens with a title card that even clues us in that it is based on the captain's log from the middle of that book in which a merchant vessel making the trip from Eastern Europe to London arrives in port completely devoid of life. And of course, we in the audience know that that can mean only one thing, a Dracula was on board and (laughs) killed everybody. The movie, however, presumes to tell us the story that we get only a glimpse of in Stoker's novel with a cast that includes Ashlyn Franchosi, Liam Cunningham, and Corey Hawkins as the brave and perhaps doomed crew that have to face down Dracula himself on the high seas. So, Sarah... You are our resident vampire enthusiast. You have read, of course, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of course. I'm kind of curious to launch a two-pronged question at you to get us started. How do you think this uh, film does as a repurposing of the Dracula mythos? And how well do you think it works as 
an exemplar of a slightly different genre, which is the stalking monster. <laughs> mm, yeah, a two-pronged approach, a two-fanged approach, perhaps. I was going to leave that on the table. I'm glad you picked it up. I'm oh. happy to sink my teeth into any vampire jokes. There it is. Um, I don't know. It feels like a real mixed bag to answer both of your questions with a single answer. Um, as an adaptation of Dracula, I love that they were interested in telling a, a version of the story that takes a piece of the novel that's kind of just been abandoned by everybody else. Like, nobody is interested in the Captain's Log chapter. However, um, that adaptation I don't think quite fully works as a Dracula adaptation because it's not really even interested in the Dracula of it all. And that gets into the movie as a creeping stalking monster movie i don't think it really works very well on that front either i do not think that i felt much of a sense of dread at all while watching the film i don't think that the movie taught me to fear this monster in any particular way that had any substance there are a couple of very striking shots, and maybe we can get into that a little bit later on the look of the movie, but there were a few instances where I caught a glimpse of the monster in the shadows, and at that moment I was sold, and then something else would happen that would completely take me out of it. So, as a Dracula movie, mm, it's an interesting take, but I don't think it manages to capture the fear of the novel necessarily. As a creeping stalker monster movie... Not so much either. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of comparisons that I've been seeing, including from the director himself of this movie, is that this is essentially alien but on a boat in the late 1800s with a Dracula instead of a xenomorph. And I don't think this movie is alien on a boat. I think that it is alien three on a boat. And maybe mm. we can get into that a little bit. Or at least like if you'll be willing to give me the platform to talk about alien three a little bit. I mean, I am always interested in giving you a platform to talk about any of the alien movies <laughs> on the air. So we'll get there for sure. Uh, I am kind of curious before we get any further down that road, though, have you seen the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation of Dracula? That's a hot mess. Emphasis on both hot and mess. Uh -huh. And I like it quite a lot. I like it quite a lot, too. Um, that makes me feel a little bit better uh, because while I was watching Last Voyage of the Demeter, I couldn't help shaking the feeling like, man, I really wish that I had picked Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola adaptation, for the watch list pick instead of Das Boat mm. because watching Demeter, I kept wondering, why is this Dracula not working for me? And I think a lot of the reason why is crystallized in the Coppola adaptation. In the Coppola adaptation, Dracula is basically the hero of that story. Mm -hmm. um, all the human men are essentially the villains in their own special ways. I'm not going to make this a review of Coppola's movie, although I, like you, like it quite a bit uh, in spite of, maybe even because of its flaws. Mm. Um, but I think the fact that Coppola is able to make such a successful movie that completely turns Stoker's novel on its head, making the monster sort of the hero or at least the protagonist, is because Coppola understands that Dracula means something and has a very, like, he is a singular individual. Mm. And I think the big problem with The Last Voyage of the Demeter is that this Dracula kind of just feels like 
a monster. Uh, everyone tells us he's Dracula, but he doesn't really have a whole lot of personality. And I think that's kind of a misunderstanding of what makes vampires interesting in general as sort of a, a folkloric monster and what makes Dracula in specific interesting. He's not just a monster. He's a person and he, he wants certain things. He represents certain things. He means certain things. In the last voyage of the Demeter, this monster kind of just wants to kill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just don't think that's all that interesting. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the singularity of vampires as a movie monster, um, because I think the thing about Dracula is that he's both a high society sort of monster, at least he gives off the appearance of being a high society monster. He's an aristocrat. He's an aristocrat, but he's also an invader at the same time. And so Bram Stoker's original novel of Dracula is partly about the fear of the other coming to invade your own home as well. And there's a level of xenophobia, I think, that's really interesting to explore within that novel. Last Voyage of the Demeter isn't really interested in that necessarily. And I think it's because the movie keeps turning Dracula just into a monster. And there's a repeated line that says, he's not an animal, he's also a person. But I don't think I really got all that much evidence to the contrary. Um I feel as though the movie kept telling me that Dracula is a person. And occasionally you do see very small hints of there's an intelligence behind those eyes. But the movie doesn't do any of the work to demonstrate to me that Dracula is that singular person with the inherent contradictions that you're going to get from being an embodied human being. Whereas here we just have a monster that, like you said, is interested in tearing people's throats out in very violent fashion. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's to the movie's credit, there is a moment, I think, where I, uh, its portrayal of Dracula clicked for me. It's an mm -hmm. isolated moment. I don't think the rest of the movie really does much to buttress that or kind of like take it anywhere interesting, but it's during one of the, the big stalking scenes where uh, one of Dracula's victims is climbing up into the rigging of the ship and, you know, he, he already knows he's going to die. There's there's no escape. Dracula's going to get him. Dracula's, you know, climbing up after him. And the victim looks down and he says, please, like he's begging for his life, saying, please, no. And then the camera fixates on Dracula's face in close up. And Dracula sort of leers at him and, you know, imitates him mockingly. He says, please, you know, he croaks her or, you know, in a very animalistic voice, says, repeats those words back at the person he's about to kill. Mm -hmm. And I think that moment is so memorable because it's one of the only moments where we see that Dracula kind of, he's not just a monster who lives to kill. He's a monster who lives for the hunt and he's also a monster who takes delight in, in the hunt. Mm -hmm. um, there's it, It's a moment of cruelty and, for Dracula, humor that, like you said, kind of gives you a sense of the intelligence behind him rather than just kind of being this, this feral bat monster that likes to suck blood. Um, and I really wish that that moment had been played out more strongly in the other scenes, particularly... A, uh, a scene involving a little boy, which is, it should be more shocking than it is and more tense than it is. And it's not, I think, partly because it could be pretty much any movie monster 
uh, going after these people. And that's really leaving so much on the table when you're talking about one of the most famous monster, like single monsters ever to populate the silver screen. Mm -hmm. Or even really just stories in general, I think. And part of it is that this Dracula does not have all that much of a personality. Although I did get a flash of that cruelty and that intelligence in the scene that you're referencing where he is stalking this child on the ship as well. Um, But I also don't think that there's very much personality in the individual characters populating the ship either. We get a defining trait, but not much more than that. And it's one of the flaws of the film that each of those broad traits are intended to define those characters as a whole. So we have the ship's cook, who is also very much a Christian. We have the ship's doctor, who is a person of color and who is trying to get back to a location where he's going to be valued a little bit more for his abilities and not demeaned for the color of his skin. We have another character who has been a victim of Dracula, and that's literally the only defining trait that we have of her as a person as well. And I don't know, this may be the point where we start to get into the Alien 3 of it all as well, because that kind of feels like those prisoners that are on the planet of Alien 3 too, where it's a crew of men who are essentially a a bunch of shaved heads and strong feelings about religion and not much else. And I think where that movie does manage to succeed and this one doesn't is that all of those men have a uniting purpose in that they have been so demeaned that they don't even think of themselves as people much anymore. Hmm. And here on the Demeter, all of the crew members are still fighting for their individuality, but we don't even get a sense of what that individuality is that they're fighting for. Well, I mean, part of what makes Stoker's novel so interesting to think about is um as you mentioned earlier it's not just about you know a vampire comes to london and causes havoc it's about the fear of those decadent continental europeans coming in and defiling our pure victorian goodness in in various ways with the you know uh their decadent sexuality their uh their coarse ways like that's that's all kind of uh, contained in Dracula as sort of a synecdoche for those people. Mm-hmm. And um, here it feels like because the movie isn't doing anything with that, it's kind of trying to force some sort of other conflict into the confrontation with Dracula onto these characters, but the characters aren't deep enough to really support that. And some of the particular ways that the screenplay by Bragi Shute and Zach Olkowitz try to draw that out seems kind of forced. For example, uh, Corey Hawkins, you know, he's he is a black man who is also a doctor mm-hmm. in the, you know, in 1899, and he has trouble applying his trade because uh, of the entrenched racism in a lot of the societies that he's found himself living, and the way that that is kind of made to intersect with the Dracula of it all is. Um, racism doesn't make sense to Clemens, the doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, and he wants to make sense of the world. Dracula's brutality and lust for blood also doesn't make sense. And so he, instead of just running away, he wants to somehow confront him and make sense of why Dracula is who he is. 
and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it feels like the movie is really wanting it to make sense because otherwise there's really no particular reason why this group of characters is interesting. Mm-hmm. In the novel, they're not interesting. They're simply there to demonstrate, you know, Dracula made it to England and he's, you know, he's a dangerous, bloodthirsty monster. And that's really all the purpose they serve. The movie has to find answer the question of, well, why are we watching their story then if they just exist to be killed? And I don't think it really satisfactorily answers is it. Yeah, which is a real bummer because I think that there are the seeds of a really good movie somewhere here in this script. And I think if the script had been willing to both connect those dots a little bit more and also pulled back on some of the more broad elements, I think that this probably could have worked. Like the idea of a monster on a ship stalking and killing the crew is a genuinely interesting one. And I think if you are able to draw the connections between the violence of a monster that is going to essentially treat everybody on board as food and the violence that each of these crew members has to deal with in their day-to-day lives, whether that's the violence of racism or the violence of being trapped underneath, um, I don't know, a noble who is going to decimate your village and who doesn't care. I think that those connections could possibly be there, but the script isn't really all that interested in them because it's just interested in telling us those broad strokes and then attempting to string them together with sequences that unfortunately were not all that scary, even though they did get quite bloody in places. Yeah, I saw uh, an an observation elsewhere, and I'm sorry that the, the name of the critic is escaping me, that observed that... One thing that the original, I, I know that you're you're on board the Alien 3 mm-hmm. on a boat observation, but if we go with the Alien on a boat analogy where it's like the, the very first Alien movie, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's the observation that every one of the um, stalking suspense sequences in that movie kind of has its own miniature arc and its own little personality. You know, there's... There's one where Dallas is up in the ducts mm-hmm. and there's the one where they've got the motion sensor and every one of those kind of has a definable start and end point and kind of a mini narrative for the audience to become invested in like are you know, where, where's the alien? How are they going to find it? How is this member of the crew going to be dispatched? And that's very interesting in Demeter though. It kind of feels like, well, it's nighttime, Dracula comes out and he kills somebody, you know, above decks and then he disappears again. And that's kind of just how it plays out every time. And that doesn't really, it, it makes the movie feel a little bit shapeless. It's structured almost like a game of werewolves or mafia. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> which, you know, both fun games, but more fun in game form than just watching other people play them. It is interesting because there are a lot of visual references, I think, to the original alien. So when we first get introduced to the hold of the ship, as we're being walked around the ship and given a sense of its space, there are shots that quote one of those scenes from Alien that you're talking about, where the alien is stalking a member of the crew, Um, specifically the moment where Harry Dean Stanton is off looking for the ship's cat. He kind of opens a pair of doors and looks out over a kind of a large hold that has some mysterious machinery in it. And we don't really know what it is, but there are chains clanking from the ceiling and there's stuff all around him and you get that sense of bulk. And we get that sense of bulk in the hold of the Demeter too, but it's just a visual quote and nothing more. And I kept thinking that this movie was 
quoting Alien and also, my opinion, Alien 3 for a purpose, but I couldn't quite figure out exactly what that purpose was beyond being a callback to another horror movie that is about this idea of personhood and what happens when you run up against somebody who just does not care about you as a person and is going to inflict violence on you. Um, and so those references were kind of a, they, they made my brain light up a little bit, but they also bummed me out a little bit because they weren't really adding all that much on top of the reference. It was just, it was a reference that was there and there wasn't anything much more to it. It, it feels, there's a weird sort of almost perfunctory nature to the way that this movie goes through a lot of those motions because, um, that personhood angle is sort of touched on with Ashlyn Franchosi's Anna. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she shows up as what they think is initially a stowaway inside one of those big crates that Dracula, uh, has brought on board with him. And, uh, we come to find out from her that, um, she is a member of the village that lives in the shadow of Castle Dracula and that she was essentially brought along as a food source for Dracula during the during the voyage. And the way that she relates uh, that bit of information and the story about her village kind of seems like the, the movie is, is establishing that point about personhood. Like she is not seen as anything more than a food source for Dracula. Her people are seen as nothing more than uh pawns or slaves for dracula um and that is intensely dehumanizing and that forms part of her motivation for why she takes up with uh the rest of our band of heroes but again that's a single scene it doesn't really particularly pay off uh or at least i didn't see it paying off all that much and it feels like that sort of thing happens throughout the film you you mentioned there's kind of a sequence where we get taken on a tour of the Demeter so we could kind of like get a sense for the geography of the ship, but it's all done in a very profound, like literally it's done by the, the child character saying, come on, I'll take you on a tour. <laughs> it's, it's doesn't feel very organic. We already talked about how, uh, Clemens, the doctor, his motivation for confronting Dracula is stated but maybe not dramatized mm -hmm. um and it, it all feels like uh this film is trying to do a lot of things that will make it more than just a monster killing people on a boat movie but it seems like its heart isn't really in it yeah i think this kind of story works best when you try to make the monster on a boat killing people movie before trying to layer on any sense of metaphor or additional meaning on top of it the metaphor and the meaning will come and especially if it's a good and well-told story i think that the audience can also bring some additional meaning that was never intended by the filmmakers as well but here i think we get a few instances of life lessons with Dr. Clemens, I think, in conversation with the ships, like the, the boy on board of the ship who's just kind of there as the nephew of the captain. And in those moments, I felt like the movie was telegraphing so much of what it was trying to do. And then there was no real follow through. I do think that Ashlyn Franchosi's character does have a little bit more depth to her, but maybe that's because I saw her as sort of a Ripley in Alien 3 specifically analog. So hmm. she's a character who shows up on the boat mysteriously. Everybody is very um I've thought <laughs> okay. about this a lot. <laughs> okay. She's um she's suspect 
by the crew. They actually straight up say it's bad luck to have a woman on board, which is kind of the same attitude that the prisoners on Fury 161 have towards Ellen Ripley as well. And she brings in tow a monster that she understands and nobody else does and that nobody else even fully believes exists at first. And she's well aware of it, but she's also so conscious of what that monster is and can do and that nobody else is going to believe her that she's going to hold that very close to her chest until it's time for her to rally everybody together in order to fight Dracula or, you know, in the case of Alien 3, fight the Xenomorph. So structurally, that's there. There's also that relationship between Ashlyn Franchosi's character and Mr. Clemens, the doctor on board the ship, but also the name of Charles Dance's character in Alien 3. Both doctors are named Mr. Clemens, and I don't think that's an accident. (laughs) (laughs) I did not make that connection at all. See, this is why we have you talk about Alien 3 on the show. Yes. (laughs) That's that's a really good connection and obviously one that hadn't occurred to me. Um, Yeah, I think... uh, You know, the thing about Alien 3 is that part of the reason why that drama with Ellen versus the rest of the prisoners works is because there's sort of this, the explanation for their obstinacy is they've got kind of this almost cult-like society they formed among themselves. Mm -hmm. And that kind of provides the audience with a, a reason why it's plausible that they would be so uh um distrustful at first even in the face of obviously replace not the problem the scary alien is mm-hmm. um the the thing about the last voyage of the demeter is again it's not so much that it doesn't do anything it's more that it just kind of it uh establishes something very perfunctorily and then doesn't really flush it out in any way so the you know these being sailors in the 1800s they're established to be very superstitious. That's where the whole it's bad luck to have a woman on board comes from. The The ship's cook is a very devout Christian, but his devoutness kind of manifests as something pretty closely adjacent to superstition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the it, it feels like the movie doesn't really, is either not interested in really teasing out the way that superstition characterizes not just a few lines of dialogue, but the sailor's whole worldview um, that would really play up the tension between them and Anna. And it never really does. It's just sort of, you know, a lot of them die before that tension is even really able to make itself felt, which kind of leaves you wondering, well, what is the, again, what is interesting about these people? Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I keep coming back to, I just don't think they are very interesting. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Um, I would love to know a little bit more about what makes this specific ship home to some of these people. So one character that we haven't mentioned at all yet is Mr. Vorchek, who's played by David Desmalchian. And he explicitly states, like, I don't want anything bad to happen to this ship because this is my home. Like, this is where I live. This is where I work. This is my place. And he doesn't really do all that much to demonstrate that sense of belonging before that statement is made. And we get a little bit more of it afterwards, but again, it feels a little bit more perfunctory. Whereas with those prisoners in Alien 3, say what you will about their individuality, they're they're kind of just a collection of shaved heads and not much more. But at the very least, you understand why they would feel like a cohesive unit. 
And I think that that really draws out that movie's themes of sexism um, and religion that this movie probably couldn't touch because it doesn't really have a solid story to it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, even the uh, the the very beginning, you know, kind of sets the stage for you know this is a crew uh, of of the Demeter left uh, port, and then uh, it essentially sets the table uh, by giving us a, a single line of text, sort of establish us like this is what the movie is going to be about, and then underneath that, it adds another one saying based on the captain's log from Bram Stoker's novel. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's just sort of like, it, it's such a weird, unforced error because it's totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know that this is from, based on s- something Bram Stoker wrote in order to enjoy the film. Mm-hmm. Why does the director, Andre Uverdahl, like, think that that is needed? I don't know, maybe, maybe, it, was a, maybe it was a studio note? Who knows? But it, it seems, it's just a, such a weirdly ancillary thing to put in that again feels like it's there but it to what end what purpose unclear another slightly more galaxy brained um connection between this and alien 3 is that both i think were in development madness for a really long time and a lot of studio meddling and i feel like that shows here like this movie was first developed or like on the table way back in the 90s it's been in development for more than two decades And a lot of the more obvious pieces kind of feel like a studio note saying, make this connection to the original book a little bit more obvious, like show that crest of the dragon on Dracula's boxes of dirt one more time, just so that people understand (laughs) that this is Dracula that we're dealing with here. I think fans of the book would have been interested in it either way, honestly. And I think what I would have appreciated a little bit more would have been that sense of mystery that we get from the book and from that chapter in the book in particular. We don't get a lot of the specifics. We just know that the ship has some cargo and the crew members are starting to disappear one by one. And the way that it's told is told so sparsely with so little detail that we're left to kind of fill in those details in our imaginations. And the rest of the book to varying degrees manages to pull off that trick too where there's a sense of mystery and we're not told everything up front this movie tells us everything immediately up front from there's dirt in those boxes to something bad is on this ship and i think if the movie had been willing to exercise just a little bit more restraint and a little bit more subtlety and trusted its audience to come along for the ride I think this really could have worked. And it really bums me out that the movie is so broad about trying to get its point across that it fails to make any point at all. It's a weird paradox that in sort of like trying to force meaning into the story to really go for something more than just monster stalks people on a boat, it paradoxically ends up feeling kind of like it's not really... it. it it doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning. It's it's sort of, it tries to do a few things, does none of them well, and it f- ends up feeling diminished as a result. Whereas you watch something that's even, you know, stripped down to, you know, bare bones experience like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like there's so yeah. much meaning in that movie, even though it's so simple and there's not a whole lot of effort spent on explaining any of it. It just is... And you you can draw so much uh, meaning out of that just 
by its very nature. I don't know. It's it's weird how this movie is trying to do more and ends up with so much less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again, it's kind of a bummer because it's a great idea. It's just a little bit clunky in the execution. Well, hopefully Bram Stoker is not rolling over in his grave figuratively or literally um, uh, with, at this review of The Last Voyage of the Demeter. But listeners, we are interested in your takes as well. If you've had a chance to see this movie, let us know what your thoughts were on it. You can reach out to us on Letterboxd. Our handle over there is Pod, Or you can also email us longer form thoughts at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com we crave those thoughts uh stick around we're going to be uh sharing a pretty big announcement here in the middle segment and then moving on to a review of another death trap of a boat with our review of das boat this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of grieve breathe receive finding a faith strong enough to hold us Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call The Conversation. This is usually where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. We are going to be doing something a little bit different in this episode because we actually have um, some news to share about Mm -hmm. uh, the future of seeing and believing kind of like where we're going from here. So uh, we are closing in on our 400th episode, Sarah. Huge milestone We've been doing this show uh, in some form for a really long time now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, kind of a bittersweet moment for me to announce that come episode 400, that'll be the last time we fire up the weekly podcast mics for, for the show. Seeing and Believing is going to be kind of not sh- closing its doors necessarily, but changing into a different form maybe xenomorph like (laughs) hope well maybe not hopefully a lot less bloody than a xenomorph (laughs) yeah hopefully a lot less scary um yeah listeners we will be sharing further details about what form seeing and believing is going to take in the coming episodes but we want to kind of like get that announcement out there now just to let you know that we are uh reaching the end of our weekly release format so uh, we want to make that announcement, take the opportunity to thank you all for sticking with us, whether you've been listening with us for not very long or whether you've been with us since episode number one. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate you helping us make the podcast what it is. And we're really excited to share uh, where we're going to be headed going forward. This is maybe the end of the weekly podcast, but it's not necessarily the end of seeing and believing. Mm-hmm. So uh, more news to come on that, but just wanted to make that announcement. And yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Kevin, now we're going to go back to a usual segment of the podcast. This is the watch list. It's the part of the podcast where one host picks a movie that the other host has not yet seen, and we watch it, and then we come back and we talk about it. So this week, um, you were just decrying that I hadn't, we hadn't had the chance to talk about Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, I believe is the proper name for that movie. But I think you picked a really good movie to pair with Last Voyage of the Demeter. This, of course, is Das Boot, which was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. It is 1941, and the Germans are beginning to lose their grip on the Atlantic Ocean. War correspondent Lieutenant Werner has been assigned to the German U-boat U-96, and he expects to find war heroes, but instead he mostly finds drunk boys and a disillusioned captain, played by Jürgen Prochnow. Werner finds that a life at sea, spent mostly under the waves, is one of tedium, occasionally broken up by the opportunity to hunt allied ships across the Atlantic. But as the tide turns against the Germans, the hunters become the hunted. So, Kevin, I'm guessing that the main connection that you were thinking of here was one of people being hunted on a boat. But I was wondering if you had any other connections that you were thinking of when you picked this. I mean, it was it was basically the boat equals death trap angle <laughs> that I was that I was thinking of when I when I picked this out. There's also the the element of unseen threat Mm. that uh tied in with them as well so you know pretty on the nose as far as uh connections between the new release and the watch list pick go but yeah i i did also want to share it because we had talked about reviewing it for the watch list as part of a, a dad movie episode that's right and you know we we ended up pulling an audible and talking about something different for that episode but Das Boot couldn't be denied, so I, I decided to break it out for this episode. Mm-hmm. It's a good choice. Well, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad you like it. I'm curious to know, you know, it it is it is a war movie. It is a you know, it's a submarine movie, and I think revisiting it this time, I was able to appreciate even more just how much the submarine cliches that are now cliches are because of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the last time I saw it was actually in high school. Oh, wow. I was pleased that it held up since I didn't always have the best taste in high school. (laughs) So I'm glad that it was a successful rewatch for me. But, uh, you know, it it sounds like it was possibly a successful initial watch for you, but I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, because three and a half hour long war movies are not generally my bag. But here I think... It's a very strong movie. It's a very good movie. And I think a lot of the movie's strengths are not so much in being focused on those grand themes of war, but being focused on undercutting those grand themes by what the individuals that are waging war kind of have to go under and go through. So there's the initial disillusionment that Werner feels when he first sets foot on the boat and realizes like that he is surrounded by essentially teenage conscripts who have no idea what they're doing and whose delusions of grandeur are even greater than his own. 
And then his discovery that the senior officers on board the boat are also deeply disillusioned themselves. They're sick of the war. They don't believe that their leadership is doing anything good. And yet they're still bound by this sense of duty to keep doing their job hunting and then eventually becoming the hunted. And I like this, especially as a character study of the CEO, of, of the captain of the boat, played by Jürgen Prochnow. I, I think it's just a fantastic performance because there's so much that he's doing, even though he's not really saying all that much because he doesn't need to. I think the movie is aware of his presence as a character. And we get a lot about his disillusionment just in the way that he reacts to the other characters that he has to continually direct and in the way that he corrects them into doing their jobs whenever necessary, but is kind of, it, it almost feels as though it's perfunctory in a sense of duty for him as well. And I just, I, I found that contrast very fascinating, especially because this is a war movie that is about Nazis fighting in World War II. And I, I genuinely was not sure how I was going to feel about watching this movie, given those specific protagonists. But I think one of the things that Peterson does really well is he imbues his characters who are humans with humanity without having any illusions about what it is that they're doing or who it is that they're fighting for. And I think it's a very nuanced portrait. And it also gets across the idea that war is hell for everybody involved, including those on the wrong side of the conflict. I, I think more than than establishing war as hell, I think it also establishes that war just is not sexy. <laughs> like, yes. Um, so there's you know that that famous uh, Truffaut quote uh, about how it's impossible to make a truly anti-war movie because simply making something that's cinematically interesting will kind of render it attractive in some way. And so simply like showing combat in a cinematically interesting way won't just make it cinematically interesting. It'll also make it like, it'll make war itself interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is the rare movie that kind of gives the lie to that, um, partly because Peterson focuses... You know, there obviously are some really great suspense sequences in this film, but, the you know, it's a three-hour movie and spends so much time focusing on just how so much of life for these sailors is boring, smelly, cramped, claustrophobic, uh, hard work. Like, the, the, the guys in the engine room are constantly dripping in sweat, you know, half-naked, covered in grease, you know, just trying to keep things going it's noisy and all of that comes together to show like these guys more so than just you know feeling like their lives are terrible because war is hell it's just it's not a very fun place to be it's just it's 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 tedium or uncomfortable or terrifying uh in turns and there, but there's never really any sense that it's for anything the way this movie ends is just you know they do make it through the danger and then they're bombed in the harbor mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's all for nothing. And that feels very pointedly anti-war, even though, uh, you know, as you observed, these are characters that in an, in another movie, we would be cheering for their demise. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's interesting how Pearson is able to walk that tightrope. Yeah. 
that ending is kind of a gut punch, which is remarkable because we already know that there's a lot of tedium and that the alarms that these characters have to go through are something that you would think would be exciting, I think, under any other circumstance. But here, it's nothing but fear, fear, fear. So you have these stretches of boredom where the characters are just trying to, you know, stay alert enough to be able to be awake for whenever the alarm gets sounded. And then the moment the alarm is sounded, it happens at an inconvenient time. We literally see a sailor like come flying out of the toilet in order to respond to, um, I'm not sure if it's an air siren or something like that, but they know that they're going to have to dive and they're going to have to fight. And every time that it happens, it's something that you would expect would relieve the boredom. But instead, I think it just makes the boredom worse because it's stretching all of these characters' nerves to the breaking point, And then it's snapping at them in a way that doesn't relieve the tedium. It just makes everything more terrifying because instead of just being tedious, now they're also possibly going to die. And possibly they're going to die in the worst possible way, which is being crushed at the bottom of the ocean or blown up by anti-sub missiles. So they're, I don't know, it's just, it's remarkable that Peterson is able to tell an engaging story while also making it very clear that all of these characters are both deeply bored and deeply terrified and deeply dissatisfied with their lives without reverting to, I think, any of the cliches about that. And he does it by painting a very deft portrait of what life on board this U-boat is like. Because he's focused on what is it that makes life here so unique? Now what does now what about that makes it so terrible? Now let's examine that and sit with it for a little while. Like there's a character who's spends some time just carving mold off bread in the mess. And he says, be grateful that at least something grows here. And that just <laughs> captures his philosophy about life, but also just what it's like to live under those conditions for so long um, that I couldn't help but laugh about it either. But also it's kind of chilling to think about that this character has hit that point where mold is something to be enjoyed a little bit. I think that that mordant sense of humor also uh, is an important ingredient in this movie just not being just a total slog i mean mm -hmm. i i think that's the sort of thing that m has made this movie endures it, it gives the movie a spark so it's not like an like a an experimental art piece where it's aiming to create the same boredom in the audience that's the characters on screen are feeling mm -hmm. that's you know might be a laudable artistic aim but it's not something that you necessarily want to subject yourself to mm -hmm. uh even once if and definitely not multiple times this movie i think because it is able to leaven those those long stretches where we're just kind of watching these sailors mess around while they wait for the next uh encounter to happen uh i i think kind of helps it be both watchable while still conveying the fact that it is boring to be on this ship. I th and the lengths to which some of these people go to amuse themselves mm -hmm. is, is remarkable. There's one scene where uh, one of the sailors, he puts on a, a grass skirt and makeup and dances for the rest of the sailors enjoyment. And it's, it's very silly and weird. Um, but it's also, uh, very subtly 
illustrating that these guys don't have anything else going on when they're not fearing for their lives at the bottom of the ocean. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's its own kind of commentary on their situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're trapped, which makes the sequences where the boat is actually genuinely trapped by the other side, all the more scary. And the captain of the boat explicitly tells his crew, this is the moment where the psychological games begin. And it's after they've been flushed out from hiding by the British and they have been forced to dive deeper than they've ever dove before. They're beyond the limits of what their sub is supposed to be able to do. And so they're just going to sit there and they're going to listen and they're going to whisper and they're going to hope and pray that nobody else is going to shoot anything at them because otherwise there's nowhere else that they can go. They just have to sit there and they have to wait. Um, And that's one of the things that I find so compelling about this movie is its patience in being willing to establish those stakes and then also its willingness to demonstrate just how dangerous this kind of boat is. And it does so without trying to just point it out and put a, a giant flashing sign on it. But every time the boat dives, you hear creaking and things start to leak and everybody goes quiet, partly because they're just listening because they don't want to be detected. Um, but also because they're listening to the sounds of the boat around them and hoping that it's not going to implode on them too. Yeah. I, and I really like, especially the performance that Peterson gets out of, uh, Herbert Gronemeyer who plays, uh, Werner, the war correspondent. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in those sequences that you're talking about, we, we get several, uh, cutaways to him and he's frozen and he's he's got his eyes closed and his face turned away almost as if he's bracing himself for a blow Mm -hmm. because he doesn't know when the ship is going to implode if it's going to implode none of them do he can just he can do nothing but sit there and wait for the blow that might never come or might kill him instantly Mm -hmm. and that uh i i think that's why this movie works so well it's just like those those little human touches that that Pearson thinks to insert uh amid all the you know the standard kind of s- suspense devices of those the sound work that you mentioned the cutaways to depth charges going off those are all important too but it's the the tensed up waiting for the blow to fall that I think really sells it to to the viewer that feels like That's the thing that makes this movie special. But I think another piece of the movie that works really well is that Peterson is able to take some of those more stock necessary pieces of exposition and he can still make them interesting. So we talked in a review of Last Voyage of the Demeter about how there's a moment when one character explicitly tells another character, come on and I'll give you a tour of this ship. And we get almost the exact same scene in Das Boot as well. But it's something that feels natural because Werner is joining the crew, essentially embedding with them so that he can report on their exploits. And as he is being taken through the boat, he gets to know the space and we do alongside him. But we're also almost immediately undercut by our own expectations and by Werner's expectations, because every time you go down a corridor, you realize This is a bunch of 19-year-olds who have no idea what they're doing at sea, and they're all crammed in together, and we're going to just keep getting image after image 
of all of them crammed in together until we hit the petty officer's quarters where there are six men in like a 20 foot square space. (laughs) And that's realistic for German U-boats of that time. But it's also surprising because we get the sense for what that life is like, even as one of the characters is trying to show it off as, isn't this great? All of us get our own space where we have six bunks crammed together instead of 18 bunks crammed together. And I think that undercutting and then also being very matter of fact at the same time just goes so far in bringing up, I think, the verisimilitude of this movie, but also giving us a sense for the psychology of the characters that inhabit its walls. Yeah, that that's a good point about giving us insight into the psychology of the characters. Those that that sequence serves a utilitarian purpose. It's establishing the geography for the audience's benefit through sort of the closest thing to an audience surrogate figure that the film has, but also simply by taking us down the length of the boat, um, it, it establishes the physical space. It also establishes just kind of like the psychological effect that that space is going to have on these men. How in uh, even the, you know, the, the mucky mucks on the ship, the, the commanding officer, uh, and his his first mate and and all of them, they're still crammed in like sardines. The captain's table, people have to squeeze by and you know smack them in the face with their jackets while they're you know while they're moving on to another place in the boat. So even status isn't any defense against the fact that they're all stuck in there together and there's really no way out. I'd really like to hear the cinematographer Yost Vacano uh, talk about the way that he shot these interiors, like what kinds of lenses he used, because it really does. I've seen my fair share of submarine movies, but none of them capture the, the claustrophobia of the setting, the way that Vacano's cinematography does. And I'd really love to know how he achieved that effect. Yeah. I would like to know too. I also want to know how he managed to get those shots of the camera chasing the crew down the length of the Mm -hmm. submarine every time an alarm goes off. Once the alarm goes off, most of them pile up at the front of the boat and the boat takes a dive and they're essentially acting as human ballast. And then they're also clustered together somewhere where hopefully the depth charges won't be as likely to get them. And every time the alarm goes off, the crew has to just kind of run for their positions and the camera follows suit feels like it's a little bit lower than it is during the rest of the movie. And it's also handheld. So we feel those jolts and that shaking. But I think it gives the movie a sense of momentum to have that camera a little bit lower, a little bit closer to the ground, following all of these characters who are essentially bent flat as they're trying to race through that submarine. And it gives additional sense of um, that claustrophobia on it gives an additional sense of that claustrophobia just on top of everything else that's been going on up until that point, too. Yeah, and well, that that motion also it helps give the movie a sense of momentum as well because mm-hmm. it is a single you know single location. Most of the time, they're sitting around and waiting, so that cinematography helps again, kind of lends urgency and give a spark to the film that is very necessary for for making it a cinematic experience that you would actually want to experience Mm -hmm. um i and i also like how you know it is handheld um and we're moving very fast but it's not like modern shaky cam it's still very visually legible so 
uh, again, like I'm, I'm super interested in hearing more about the craft behind it. And because of that speed, I genuinely got concerned for some of the crew members safety as they were like doing racing from one end of the boat to another. At one point, one of them, you know, dives towards the front of the boat and, you know, there's a girder hanging about like, you know, forehead level. And I, I genuinely tensed up at that moment going is, I hope he doesn't smack his head yeah. on, on that. But, and that's all in the production design, the cinematography to kind of make me feel that way. Yeah. And I think that adds to the sense of anxiety that just builds and builds and builds over the course of the entire movie. So I think the moment that the captain says, this is where the psychological games start. I don't think they led up until the end of the film, even though we get a few instances where, there might be a little bit of a break in the action. I think that real sense of danger and the knowledge that they're going to have to dive that deep again if they want to survive this war um, just kind of hangs over your head until eventually one of the crew members cracks. So the character, I believe his name is Johan. He's one of the engineers or he's a machinist or something um, who is working to keep the boat moving and floating. And as... The boat goes on stalking British ships, trying to sink convoys and sink other ships. At one point, they end up playing chicken with another boat that's on the on the surface where they're getting pinged by sonar over and over and over again. And then um, Johan just cracks and he can't take it anymore. And he starts screaming. And that's a danger to the boat, because if somebody is making noise that loudly on a submarine, they're going to be heard. Like the outside world is going to be able to find them. And the moment that that happens, I think the captain is willing to take drastic measures in order to be able to shut his own crew member up so that everybody else on board is going to survive. You can feel him doing that difficult calculus throughout the entire movie, but I think it's most clear there and it's also clear that the rest of the crew is also performing that calculus because the moment they realize what's happening, that there's going to be a confrontation and it's not going to go well for Johan, um, the rest of the crew bodily picks him up and takes him to the other side of the boat so that he's going to be separated away from the captain. And I think that speaks to the tension of having to live in such close quarters with somebody that you know is going to crack eventually. And then watching that person crack and realizing that this is a life or death situation for everybody involved, but also a mental health break for this other character, just kind of ratcheted up that tension in a way that felt very believable. And then the apologies that we get from Johan afterwards, where he realizes like I was not in control of myself at this moment and I put everybody in danger and I don't know what to do to make it right. And there isn't really anything that he can do. And it's a beautiful little arc of tension and then break where everything snaps. And then it's never really fully relieved, but it does resolve itself in that Johan knows what he's done and he knows that he wasn't in control. And I think it also serves to crank up some of that additional tension because if it happened to him, maybe it'll happen to him again or maybe it'll start happening to the rest of the crew too. Yeah, and that brutal calculus that you mentioned, I think, again gets back to this movie capturing something that's very important to capture about war is that it has warfare has the power to just warp human beings into a shape that they should not be warped into. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that uh, Jürgen Prochno's uh, captain has to seriously consider uh, murdering one of his own crew in order to shut him up or har harming him in other ways like that, 
that is something that no person should have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 sheer amount of engineering genius that goes into creating uh, this this rickety death trap that is designed to kill other humans mm-hmm. is staggering and also absurd. And again, we I just keep coming back to that ending where, you know, they, they get back home. Uh, the captain has succeeded in, you know, getting them back safe and whole for the most part, um, only for it to be bombed in the harbor. And yeah. then the end. And that's it, it's it, it reminds me almost of Vonnegut in some ways, just mm. the, the the way that it captures a certain kind of absurdity that's just inherent to warfare. Um that I don't know, it, it, it sticks with me. That that ending, um, one reason why I was excited to revisit it for the watch list is I still think about that. Like I would I would think about that ending for years upon years, even though you know I just watched it in German class because the teacher didn't necessarily want to do teaching that day. <laughs> Good job on your teacher's part for showing Das Boot. Yeah, it, it worked out well for everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it's a real so it goes kind of moment, I think, at the end. And I don't know. It, I'm, it's something that I think I'll still be wrestling with for a while is just the captain's motivations for continuing to fight in the war beyond the fact that it's his job. He's clearly not interested in anything that Hitler's doing and he doesn't respect him as a person. And yet he's still continuing to fight for Nazi Germany. And I was trying to put my finger on how much of that is a sense of duty towards his country much of that is a sense of duty towards the men that he leads and then how much of that is just a sense of duty towards the boat that he lives on like that's his home and we don't have to be explicitly told that but we get that sense when we watch him watching it sink the look on his face as the boat disappears underneath the waves that final time I think is quite devastating because that's his entire life that's all that he knows how to do Maybe it's something that he's been warped into, I think. Mm. Um, But I don't fully know what to make of it, and yet it still rings true for me. So I think it's something that I'm going to be wrestling with for some time. Well, glad I could bring you into that world as well. (laughs) It's very devastating, but thank you. (laughs) Hooray! Uh, Okay, so that does it for Das Boot. Uh, (laughs) Listeners, if you took this voyage with Sarah and me, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts were about this uh, stalwart of the submarine subgenre. Did you like it? Did you did you not like it? Did you were you surprised by it in some ways? Let us know your thoughts. As we mentioned earlier, you can find us over on Letterboxd or shoot us an email to do that. I'm really looking forward to next week's watch list segment because you picked a movie that has been on my list to catch up with for a very long time, Sarah. Excellent. We're going to be talking about we're going all the way back to all Charlie way back. Chaplin. <laughs> We are going to be watching Modern Times' 1936 Little Tramp movie. Mm. And uh, this is a movie that I think about a lot, kind of in the same way that you said that you think about Das Boot. I saw it quite some time ago as part of a project to just watch a lot of older movies. And it's one that's stuck with me. So I'm excited to share it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to that one. City Lights is one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm. I love that movie, and I'm looking forward to seeing whether Modern Times captures some similar magic as that. Listeners, we're going to be pairing that 
with the new release Landscape with Invisible Hand. So keep an eye out for that next week. I promise there is a connection between those two. One's a movie about aliens. One's a movie about Charlie Chaplin. But there, there is some connective tissue, I think. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing about that, Sarah. Bring, bring the big guns. I'm all for it. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> but that'll do it for this week, listeners. Thanks so much for joining us, as always. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.